All right. Hello and welcome to Realcom's first webinar of 2023, a brand new year with lots of new challenges. We're kicking off this year with an important series titled Driving Business Outcomes with Smarter Buildings. I'm Chuck Nicewanger, president of NiceNets Consulting, your Realcom host for today's webinar, Smarter Building Fundamentals. It's smarter, not just the smart building, So, you, and you'll see why. This series, this one and next week, is focused on the why, the what, and how companies are capturing, analyzing, reporting on building data to meet specific targeted business outcomes as defined by their business strategy. Some companies may have already adjusted their 2023 building technology budgets to do more of this or possibly none of it based on some of the market uncertainty. Is that good or bad? We'll get into it with the panel. But before we get started, let me go over a few housekeeping items to help you have a great webinar experience. First of all, thank you to all of our live attendees. We so appreciate you tuning in with us. Um, there is a Q&A box on the bottom uh, of your screen to submit questions and comments. It's always better when you're an active participant. And if you're watching this as a recording, uh, you'll see Ian Thompson's uh, Realcom email in just a second. Uh, I'll mention it. Uh, send If you have questions that come up then or scenarios that you wish we would have covered or things like that, send those to me or send those to Ian. He'll send them to me and we can uh, maybe include it in next week's webinar. Great host. You'll see that at the end. Uh, great panel. Good, good, uh, good opportunity for education in this topic. In the handout section, you'll find more detailed bios of our panelists and informative slides. So some of them are included in the webinar, but we, some may not be. Uh, for the best webinar experience, we do recommend closing out any other internet applications, especially streaming videos and looking up jokes about smart buildings. Like, what did one smart building say to another? Well, nothing. They couldn't communicate with each other because somebody wasn't paying attention in the webinar that covered that section. Don't be that person. So just pay attention, great content, and uh, we'll, we'll probably be able to get your, uh, your questions resolved. If you are experiencing technical issues with connectivity, sound, or video quality, the best thing to do is disconnect and click on the webinar link again. You can also email Ian at ithompson at realcom.com, I-T-H-O-M-P-S-O-N at realcom.com. But don't worry, you won't miss anything because the webinar is being recorded and that link will get sent out later today. And as I mentioned earlier, if you have questions as you're watching it on the recording, just send them to Ian. He'll send them to us and we'll include them in what we address next week. This educational webinar is supported by our outstanding sponsors link spring develops manufactures distributes and supports edge to enterprise solutions that create smarter buildings smarter equipment and smarter applications the company's solutions enable users to realize outcomes efficiencies and value from their operational data link spring is at the forefront of moving buildings from smart to smarter and we have Code Labs, whose mission is to build the most intuitive, easy to use real estate software products that enable sustainability, operational efficiencies, and comfort. In fact, Code Labs of uh, their, their team of building consultants and systems integrators 
have worked with just about every one of our panelists on this one and next week. So a great resource there. We are grateful for the contributions of our vendor sponsors to the industry, to Realcom, and to helping us educate our viewers in sessions like these. If you're ready to drive your company's defined business outcomes across the entire portfolio with smarter building technology, be sure to include these trusted partners as part of your vendor evaluation process. And just as we get started this year, a quick word about Realcom webinars. These sessions throughout the entire year are specifically designed to provide quality education and instruction on the latest technologies for commercial and corporate real estate marketplace. Our goal is to discuss, debate, explore the landscape of innovative solutions, business challenges, and even uncertainty in a manner that is relatable and easy to understand and provide you, the end user community, our Realcom followers with relevant information that can be integrated into your own business objectives. Our moderator today for this webinar is Rory Barnwell. He's principal and a smart buildings leader with DLR Group. Welcome, Rory. Just make sure hey, you're welcome. Yep. How's there you going? are. Good. All right. Great. Great to see you. Um, one thing that we've found is very interesting is to run a few poll questions to get an idea of the makeup of our audience and where they're coming from. So you ready to do that? Yeah, good stuff. So right here um, uh, for our for our live attendees, if you could just give us an idea of what your position is in the company. And Rory, this can be useful for directing questions, especially for the senior executives, because sometimes this is really affects them and what their business outcomes should be. And if, and if they've decided not to pursue some of this because of some market uncertainty. So it'll be interesting to see um, how the audience is mixed up. Yeah, definitely. Thanks, Chuck. Um, so All right. can, um, definitely get that, uh, get the poll going there and we'll circle back on that after the introductions to the rest of our panelists here. And, um, and yeah, as Chuck said, uh, you know, I'll, I'll remind everyone throughout the presentation here but um yep fire those questions out in the in the chat box and um looking forward to a lively discussion here um yeah, let's run let's run uh, let's run two more polls here rory real quick yes yeah, go for it yeah. so we've worded this a little bit uh interestingly we wanted to get a feel for when it comes to smart building conversations and what your companies talk about how does 2023 stack up with say 2019 or 2020 and how those changes are 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 being made are is there you know as as you see the different options there so think through that one and think through what what the impact is as we move into some level of uncertainty some people are actually leveraging this time to do a lot more so that could be real interesting for you all right we got one more There we go. So thinking about the spend, just specifically on real estate building, smart building technology, how we, how you were you were spending in 2019, or what those plans were, and what will 2023 look like uh, when it comes to where you're budgeting, where your focus is, um, how much you're uh, planning to uh, uh, enter into projects that'll help you collect data and is that important to you for some of your these business outcomes that we're particularly talking about all right very good 
So Rory, so, I think you've got a great panel. Um, I'll let you uh, set the stage here and I'll join you at the end. Sounds great. Thanks very much, Chuck. Yeah. Um, so yeah, welcome everyone. And uh, I guess still, still uh, happy new year. Still time to say happy new year, even though we're well underway into 2023. Um, so we've got a fantastic panel discussion here. Um, panel, uh, set of panelists here coming up. Um, we're going to talk about uh, we're going to touch on many of the topics that uh, that Chuck just had in the poll right there. Um, I think it's safe to say commercial real estate is you know still recovering from uh, from March 2020 and everything that went on in between. And um, you know there's uh, potential headwinds ahead. And but I think looking at the optimistic side, we've got a vast array of smart building technologies, and many of which have been accelerated since March 2020. So. Uh, I'm really excited to talk about that uh, with the panel. Um, and so, uh, without further ado, we'll introduce our, our first panelist, Archie Mahalingham. Um, Archie is with Quadrio. Um, Archie, uh, tell us a little bit about yourself and uh, where you're coming from, the, the, what perspective you're looking at the smart building technologies from. Uh, sure, yeah, thanks, Rory. Uh, so, as Rory said, uh, my name is Archie. I'm a senior project manager at Quadril. Uh, my role at Quadril is to oversee the development and deployment of our digital building strategy across our portfolio. Uh, this includes sort of uh, legacy towers as well as new development. Um, and I mean, from a from our organizational perspective, I mean, and as it relates to smart buildings, uh, our outlook for 2023 is to continue to invest in the expansion of uh, smart buildings and uh, building strategies across um, all asset classes. Excellent. Thanks, Archie. Uh, moving along here, uh, Brad Colt is with HGA in Minneapolis. Brad, uh, why don't you tell us uh, a little bit about yourself and what angle you're coming from the uh, conversation from? Yeah. Hey, Rory. Yeah, I'm Brad Colt. Uh, as Rory says, I'm at HGA. We're architects and engineers. I'm headquartered out of our Minneapolis office and doing work nationally with our offices around the country. Um, I approach intelligent buildings, smart buildings from the low voltage technology systems standpoint and you know, the building automation system is a low voltage system a lot of technology there it's computers and networks and technology so i work very closely with our mechanical engineers and with our sustainability and resilience experts and commissioners and all these people who bring all of the different uh, roles to bear in making the buildings more optimized and smarter excellent good stuff looking forward to the to the conversation. Uh, we'll move along to Joe, Joe Amador with Amador Consulting. Joe, why don't you tell, uh, tell us a little about yourself and what angle you're coming from? Yeah, hi, thank you everyone. It's good to be here. Um, Joe Amador, uh, I'm a former product manager uh, in Smart Buildings, uh, formerly Johns Controls, worked at Lucid, which is now part of Acuity, but now I work for myself and, and focus on a couple angles within the smart building space. I work with a lot of software vendors or solution vendors because a lot of technology in our space is not exclusively software. Um, and I help them on various angles of product strategy. So that can be a competitive analysis, voice of customer, market sizing, pricing, packaging, positioning, um, all the things that can, can kind of change the trajectory of a product or a company and its products. Uh, I do a fair bit of work with investors, usually diligence on specific uh, companies are looking at investing in or maybe an acquire or looking to acquire a business. And I do some work with owners and operators of real estate when they're looking uh, to, to make decisions around what, what is the, the gap in their current technology stack uh, where do they uh, want to fill those gaps? Where are the technologies out there? Maybe help add some, some um, uh, you know, uh, get rid of some of the noise in the industry that you sometimes have just, just due to the fragmentation. 
So I think that in particular is probably the most interesting for this discussion. And I look forward to sharing some thoughts on what, what we've seen and what's ahead. Yeah, good stuff. Thanks, Joe. Um, moving along to Mark Peacock with Linkspring. I think everybody knows Mark, but uh, why don't you introduce yourself anyway? <laughs> uh, thanks, Rory. Uh, Mark Peacock, I'm the uh, Chief Marketing Strategy Officer here at Linkspring. And for our purpose of our discussions today, I'm going to come at it from a technology and a solutions provider perspective. And one of the things that in working with our clients and looking at the industry like I do all the time, I'm seeing a, uh, a change, a transformation. And again, we've heard that over and over for the last several years. Again, this is a journey, but I've never seen it to a point uh, that we're at and where we're going as much as of a change in the last 25 years. And to me, the biggest change I'm seeing is the, the opportunity to drive outcomes. And I look at outcomes, uh, which we can get into a little bit later, both from a economic business perspective and as a operational perspective. So look forward to having some discussions uh, about those two aspects of a smarter building. Excellent. Thanks, Mark. Yeah, looking forward to diving deeper on that. Um, uh, next, we'll move along to Walter Amacucci uh, with Code Labs. Hey, Walter, how are you doing? Doing excellent. Thank you, guys. Appreciate it and uh, honored to be a part of this panel today. This is the uh, my first time rookie on the panel here at the uh, at, at the RioCom. So this is this is exciting. Going, yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Thanks. So, uh, so yeah. So Code Labs. Uh, I, here at Code Labs, I've been uh, head of business development. Uh, honored to be a head of business development. Excited with the, the super team that we have here. And our perspective coming into this, you know, is really providing a solution and being, uh, you know, a provider to many of these people that are on this panel today, actually. So we come with, from a, from a, a software standpoint, right? And, and, and really trying to understand exactly what the market needs and how do we adapt and how do we support that. So really excited to get all these different perspectives and uh, looking forward to uh, this next hour. Great stuff. Well, maybe before we uh, dive into the into the discussion, um, maybe Chuck will uh, have a quick look at the poll results, if that's possible. Can we bring that back up again? Oh, here we go. Yeah, good stuff. All right. So it uh, gives everyone a little flavor of uh, who's on the call here today. And uh, I see there's some questions coming in already. So great stuff. Thanks for those and keep them coming. And um, I'll I'll fire them out to the to the panelists here as we go. Great. Well, maybe Walter. Um, oh, sorry. We have, yeah, we have couple more to look at her sorry um okay good stuff that's interesting i think we have one more there we go significantly more spending interesting okay good stuff mark that kind of validates uh, some of your talking points um so we'll um definitely circle back in that with you um, but Walter, uh, seeing as it's your first panel, we'll, we'll start with you first. That's good. <laughs> um, so let's start with the basics, Walter. You know what? What are some examples of business outcomes that, that your clients are looking for? Yeah, you know, I guess it just depends on on the persona. It depends on who we're speaking to, the client itself, and the type of property asset that we are trying to quote unquote make smart. I guess at the end of the day. So some of the, the higher, more basic ones are kind of things like you know an increased retention rate. Uh, a reduction in energy costs, um, you know, it could be even operational improvements, process improvements. How do I make my operational day-to-day -day even better and even more efficient? 
But ultimately, you need to, you know, from our perspective, when we think about business outcomes, you know, on paper, it's one thing, but how can we deliver it so it actually shows true numbers and true value? And I think, you know, uh, part of what our goal is and part of, I think, the smart building community, all of us uh, are going to continue to drive towards, you know, reality, especially in 23 when, you know, uh, you know, things might get tighter and, and trying to find those extra dollars are going to be important. So I think, you know, some of those basic things, again, like reduced cost, process improvement, uh, increased profitability, ways that you can drive towards those things uh, are things that we definitely uh, have eyes on. Uh, Mark, maybe kind of same kind of basic question to yourself there. You'd mentioned the opportunity to drive some outcomes or what, what, what are some of the examples of, of outcomes that you're seeing at the moment? Yeah, I, I think, and again, let me break it down into those two categories that I kind of place all of this. Let's talk about the economic business side of this is that's taking more front and center and, and it's outcomes such as lowering overall real estate costs. It's reducing the budgetary uncertainty that I, you know, as an owner or an operator, really has to um, work with across their portfolio. It is maintaining or even increasing the value of the real estate asset. Uh, it's risk mitigation. It's that ca uh, capex opex balance. It's, and if you're in the leasing side of the house, it's that markability. How can I maintain, how can I get more folks to take up lease options and, and things like that? Capital planning. And ultimately, mm -hmm. this all comes down to, especially 23 uh, and going into 24, is owner operators, my discussions with them, one, many common things are coming about, but it's, I've got to do more with less. So again, uh, from an economic perspective, and then quickly just on the operational side, some of the things Walter touched on, overall cost reduction and efficiencies, of course, cybersecurity, we cannot have conversations without that, uh, system interchangeability, ESG, so forth and so on. Mm -hmm. So lots of, lots of different outcomes, and I think new outcomes that we, uh, going from smart to smarter, uh, are really addressing now, but five years ago, we did not. So. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah you had mentioned an interesting point there, um, uh, risk mitigation, risk management. Archie, I think uh, you know that's a hot topic right now in, in, in building operations. And what's your take on that? How are you guys, uh, how are you guys approaching risk risk management specifically? For us, yes. in, oh, was oh, that oh, for sorry, me? Was oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Go, go ahead. ahead. Yo, go ahead, Mike. Finish your thought there. So, for us as a technology provider, we're taking that into uh, account for anything and everything we're doing to produce our solutions that we know that is something important ultimately at the end result, the, the deployment. So we're doing everything we can and we're engaging in conversations to understand what the risk mitigation is at our various clients and customers that they're mm -hmm. facing. Mm -hmm. How about yourself, Archie? Yeah, it's a it's a really uh, it's a really interesting topic. Like in terms of risk mitigation, um, you know, one of the big one of the big things we're looking at is uh, leak detection. That, you know, so water is sort of the mm -hmm. the new fire in, in buildings. And um, one of the one of the technologies we're looking at is, uh, and we we've started to deploy across our national portfolio is 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 mitigating leaks in a building, and being able to 
bring that into the whole smart building uh, ecosystem. Uh, now, once once we've done that, the the next step is is trying to uh, leverage those kinds of systems uh, into into things like insurance premiums and and how do we how do we reduce our, our premiums because that that's at a that's at an all time high right now as well. Um, so that's so that's one sort of uh, so there's there's that avenue we're looking at as well as uh, doing things like um, uh, fault detection. So having fault detection as a as method of mitigating risk, uh, and it's one of those things that you can't necessarily uh, quantify and say, hey, we've saved X amount of dollars, but we're seeing we're seeing the benefits of doing things like FDD and 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 um, root cause analysis uh, to identify some of these issues prior to to even service contractors coming to site. So that's that's definitely something we're, we're focusing on and investing in. Mm -hmm. Excellent, um, Joel. You, know, you have a pretty good uh, broad kind of um, viewpoint of the industry and smart building technologies. What what are you seeing as uh, yeah. beachhead, so to speak, for for broader smart building investments? Yeah. So um, I think you know the, the beachhead actually kind of your question connects a little bit with some of the points that were already made. I still see a lot of solutions when they think of what is our beachhead, how do we prove value out? It still goes back to energy savings or maybe resource savings more broadly. But I think energy savings is one that makes a lot of sense because one is highly impactful. It's you're already metering uh, your energy, so it's easy to quantify. Um, I think the positive there is that you can you can show value and you can prove out a business case. At the same time, since there's many companies that see energy savings as part of of their value prop, they end up uh, you know, sounding very similar, right? So you have, you know, dozens of companies that save energy. Arguably, they do it in different ways. They might complement each other. They might together save a lot of energy. But if you're just getting into the space, you you may view this as, as a bit overwhelming in that, oh, there's 25 companies that all want to save energy in my buildings. Um, but that still remains a beachhead. I think another beachhead is ESG reporting, sustainability reporting. That's connected, of course, right? Because the more energy you use, or if you've quantified your energy use, getting that into carbon emissions is, is not that difficult. Um, I mean, there are ways to do that more precisely, but generally it's it's not a very complex calculation. Um, same with water consumption, it's metered, you can collect it pretty easily. Uh, so I think those remain beachheads. The thing I wanted to add real quick and, and touches on the point Archie was making around leak detection, you also though across the landscape, if we looked very wide around smart buildings, you have a lot of different solutions that support different use cases. And you could argue any given use case is a beachhead, right? So leak detection, to Archie's point, that is highly impactful for an owner of real estate, especially if you're leasing that space. Because if you can't go to the space you're leasing because there's been a big leak, um, a flood, uh, that that is that's very detrimental to the overall business model. Um, but there are solutions that do that very well that just focus on leak detection. Same thing with indoor air quality monitoring, where you, you have hardware that can monitor the indoor air. Um, you have a variety of them, you have certifications. Now you have a bit of an ecosystem, which is a good thing, uh, but you you don't necessarily, th that is not necessarily the same hardware or software or analytical capability as energy savings or ESG reporting. So it, it becomes a little bit complex because depending on what you as an owner operator want to achieve around uh, a, a use case or, or kind of a goal in mind, there are different solutions out there. I do think, and we'll get into this, that there will be more convergence, right? Where companies will say, we want to support a lot of your smart building use cases, not just this one or that one or this other one. Um, so I'll leave it there for now, but I think we'll, we'll get into some of those things. Yeah, no, that's a very good point. Um, 
Brad, I had a question for you here. Would you have any follow-up points to any of that? Um, yeah, I want to build on some of the, the points that Mark was touching on with the you know, owner-occupied, owner-operated buildings. And that, that you know they need to be able to do more with less. And that's a theme I hear across all of our clients. So, you know, in that situation, it's not recruiting and retaining the tenants, but it's recruiting and retaining the talent and being able to have that uh, efficiency for the labor and um, making sure that those people have the insight that they need when they need it to be able to do their jobs. It's something that that they're all very interested in. Uh, you know, the reason is you need to be able to make sure that you're maintaining comfort in the building and you don't want to be having disruptions and surprises. So being able to be a little more predictive about your maintenance cycles and knowing where you should be putting your, your maintenance dollars. And if we look at supply chain issues right now, having to do an emergency replacement is much more challenging than it used to be. So trying to extend the longevity of your equipment, you know, at the same time optimizing it for energy efficiency, uh, it really helps to limit any of those surprises that you're gonna get, you know, whether it's the emergency brake fix or, you know, God forbid, having to replace some major pieces of equipment that could really impact the way your building's operating. Mm -hmm. um, Brad, when we were chatting earlier, you mentioned uh, cross-functional goal alignment. Why is that important? Uh... You know, I think it's really important to make sure you're avoiding any point solutions within the organization. So you might have one department that's not mm -hmm. talking to another one that's making plans or buying uh, systems and equipment that are going to do one thing. And, you know, with the input from other departments, you may have made the decision differently and they will buy something that can get what everybody needs out of it. So you know, a lot of the organizations we work with work in silos. And I think it's important to try and tear those down to make sure that they're getting the right, um, you're getting the right technology and maximizing uh, the investments that they're making in the capital that they're, they're laying mm -hmm. out. And so I think planning um, with all the different perspectives at the table, taking all those personas into account uh, is really the only way that you're able to make sure that we're steering our clients towards the right solutions. Hey, Rory, yeah. can I add to that a little bit? Because I, I, yeah. I want to make point. Yeah, so I think, Brad, you touched on a, a, like there's some key words there that I think we always look for as well, because this uh, technology is, is one part of the equation, obviously, but people are, are even a bigger part of this equation, right? The adoption of this technology. I think finding that right um, uh, champion, if you will, in that partner that you're working with, somebody that can actually advocate for you uh, within, to Brad's point, one person or one faction of that organization may, may, may be very a big proponent of what you're doing, but obviously it takes kind of like an army to make sure that all of this works together, right? And we really see the, the end result come to, come to fruition and what you're hoping to get at the end of the day. So I think it's it's definitely that that alignment that we need to make sure that happens as well. So finding that key person inside that you're working with is is it's, it's a two-way street. It's a partnership at the end of the day, right? Yep. Mm -hmm. um, I'm going to go to a, a question from uh, from the audience here, and uh, thanks very much for for the questions. Keep them coming, please. Um, so David's asking um, asking us to discuss how we suggest to benchmark the current status of uh, building automation um, with with programs and certifications like Spire and SmartScore and the Building Intelligence Quotient. Um, maybe I'll start with you, Joe. Um, what's your take on that? Yeah. So it's a good question. Uh, there, I would say if we if, uh, uh, widen our horizon, there's a lot of standards and certifications. There are different levels of maturity and adoption. And I would say you could put those in the same bucket, maturity, adoption. But maturity, I tend to think of as it's a little bit more of a sophisticated and kind of tested model. Adoption is just how many people are using it. Where you're seeing the most growth 
is the sustainability certification. So commercial real estate uses Gresb or Gresby. Um, for, that's the global real estate sustainability benchmark. That's very common. Lead certification has become very common. Energy Star, which you can get a score for a building, performance-based, it's really basically an EUI on a percentile basis. That's also very common. Those are in some cases regulated. So a lot of jurisdictions, cities typically, sometimes counties, sometimes states, they require buildings of a certain size to get an Energy Star score. A lot of owners or investors within an, a real estate fund basically require you to do uh, Gresb or Gresby. Um, so you're seeing a lot of those certifications. You have well and you have fit well for healthy buildings. Um, you also have some certifications for individual hardware indoor air quality sensors. That would be reset. There's other um, certifications in indoor air quality, which is a little bit focused beyond you know, a well certification includes indoor air quality along with other things. So then to the, the question from David, I think in, on one hand, it's challenging to keep adding more certifications because even though they are different, and I, I admit they are different, there's a lot of overlap there. So the systems that would make your building healthier and more energy efficient or mm. just environmentally uh, efficient also probably fit in with a, a smart building score. And, and the smart building scores are a little bit earlier in both adoption, say not as much in maturity, um, but I think it, it, it makes a it creates a bit of a challenge in that if you've already spent a lot of time and infrastructure and just you know resources internally uh, getting on board with sustainability certifications to then say, oh, here's more certifications. And I've just anecdotally heard from some heads of sustainability, heads of buildings, real estate facilities that say, you know, I'm already spending too much of my time reporting, not enough of my time improving. And, you know, if you, there's limited hours in the day, but you're required to report to standards. So I'm not down. I'm not trying to poo-poo any of these smart building standards. I would just say there's already a lot of standards out there. I do think there's a role for them. Um, at the same time, I think it's a little bit harder to define a smart building versus a green or healthy building. That's just a little bit more nebulous. It can mean a lot of different things. So it actually is good that we have these smart building standards because I think if we can clarify that, I'm not sure we'll get to a point where we can say it's you know Energy Star. If you're over 75, which is a 75 percentile, um, what that means is you can put the, cert the certificate in your in your lobby, so you can see you know the Energy Star logo just like you can buy it on appliance. You'll see those in buildings. Mm -hmm. That's pretty black and white, right? You either get it or you don't. Um, I don't know that we're quite yet there on smart buildings to say it's a smart building, it's not a smart building. This was interesting enough. Uh, I, I did a podcast last week and, and we talked about that, right? And one of the points I made was it's not as black and white. This is a smart building, this is not, especially as we look real quick uh, to close out to, to earlier the point, Walter, you made, uh, Archie, you made the fact that maybe leak detection is a big issue for you. You may invest your time to prove out the value there to reduce cost. And maybe your building is smart around leak detection because that's a big issue. Maybe for other things, it's, it's not as smart, but it maybe doesn't need to be as smart. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I'll, I'll, Rory, it's Mark. I'll just jump in too. And I think, again, these certifications and standards are good. They have a place. And I think they, they help owners and uh, operators think about how they want to make their building smarter. And I think that, that it's a good guide, but ultimately I think it, it, um, it comes down to deciding what needs to be done now and what can wait. And I think that is a huge, huge challenge question that anybody undertaking smarter buildings uh, needs to ask themselves. Yeah. Mm. I mean, to build on that question, Brad, you know, we, we just talked about buildings. How about people? I, I believe you have a smart AP uh, after your name, right? 
I do. How, yeah. How's that benefit? I mean, how, how did that process go and how did you find it? Um, it's informative to understand, you know, all the collaborators who came together to put the criteria together and what are they thinking about what a smart building is. I was encouraged that it wasn't prescriptive about specific solutions. It was much more outcomes based. So I think a good approach uh, that really supports looking at what are the business needs. I think that it's somewhat reflective of the entire intelligent buildings industry as a whole where it's pretty stratified. There aren't a common feature set amongst different products. Mm -hmm. yeah, same thing here. We've got many different standards that didn't exist several years ago. Uh, and so I think there's an education piece. I know Wired Score is out there marketing to, uh, to building owners and to mm -hmm. other prospective APs, uh, but it's kind of hard to compare them against some of the other scores that are out there that maybe haven't been published yet. Um, David, you're uh, bringing up the building intelligence quotients and I see on the webinar. Um, I think getting more people familiar with that, how does that compare to what Spire is doing, what many of the other organizations we've heard about that are putting together scorecards are going to be doing. So I think um, anecdotally, from my experience, people are waiting to find out a little more about what does that landscape look like and are putting their dollars more into the, into the smart building investments and then mm -hmm. those uh, criteria maybe as guidelines for how they want to be thinking about the framework for their, their smart buildings. Sure. Sure. Um, we've got another question from the audience. Maybe I'll, I'll start it with you, Archie, but anyone feel free to jump in here. Um, so also from David, uh, given the return to work now includes so much more remote working, um, how are we using smart building features, smart technology to, to optimize the space and the energy for it? I know Archie had mentioned FDD, but are you doing any kind of spatial mm -hmm. analytics as well? Yeah, it's um, there's a couple things we're doing. I mean, there's um, a part of it is understanding the amount of people that are that are kind of traveling through these spaces. So um, we are looking at um, traffic data and how and how much traffic is going through each and every one of our buildings. Um, that that gives us an understanding of from an operations perspective what we have to do to optimize the building. But also it does give uh, our, our tenants some information as well as to uh, like how many people that that are going through these spaces um, and just from a from a back to work perspective you know we're also trying to do things like um, uh, uh, create better user experiences so that um, it does encourage people to come back to work and and, and optimize space better so things like uh, checking desk uh, um, checking in on your desk so if you're going to use your desk check in so that we all know that you've used that space and if you aren't going to come into into your space, you can say that it's it's, it's unoccupied, and at that point we can have more uh, sort of uh, shared spaces. Um, and so we've kind of we've kind of looked at um, uh, leveraging some of our traffic data to uh, um, uh, provide uh, like various uh, like employees that that ability to come in and, and check into other desks. Yeah, that's a great point, Brad. I think I personally think operational excellence as we move forward is going to be defined by the user experience and the story you know mm -hmm. for not if they, for not elevating the experience for buildings why would you come in you might as well stay in your basement in the suburbs you know um anyway uh, joe or anyone else want to jump in on that question specifically just about spatial analytics or okay cool um walter was gonna maybe uh go back to you with a, with a we we're here to talk about business outcomes and you know, just the fundamentals of it, you know, do, do smart buildings make business sense? And 
Yeah. Same question. Anyone else can jump uh, in there as well. Let's start with you, Walter. Yeah, it's a great question, right? Um, I think that that is part of the uh, of of the uh, consultation. It's part of the development and discussion and relationship that you you have with your clients. And and you know, um, I go back to the question: really, what is smart? I think a lot of people have asked that question, right? It, it, it's a different meaning for everybody. And I think what happens is is it could be just simply I have leak detection and that may be just smart enough for mm -hmm. me, right? So it really just goes back to how can you quantify, how can you effectively communicate this is what's making your building smart in a way that's easy to understand mm -hmm. across the board, right? And I think what's happening right now, there's some difficulty realizing what really is smart. So that what might be smart for a new construction building and they want all these bells and whistles is completely different than what is in existing building, right? Where I don't have the budget to have all these bells and whistles and everything else that needs to have all these systems talk to each other, all I simply want is to monitor my energy. That may be just mm -hmm. a small investment into their smart meters, for example. So I really think it changes, but ultimately, are smart buildings good for, you know, for does it make business sense? I absolutely 100% think yes, mm -hmm. it does make business mm -hmm. sense. I just think it's yeah. a different solution for everybody. I just don't think it's a one size fits all when we're thinking about smart yeah. buildings. Adding quickly to Walter's point, I think new construction, I mean, our focus, I think, is much more uh, existing buildings, although there are people on this panel and I'm sure people listening that that are more involved in new construction as well. And there's a lot of owners of real estate that are, are doing both, right? They're build, they're taking over old buildings. They have old buildings. They're trying to incrementally improve. They're developing new buildings. They're repositioning assets that they've acquired. So it, it's, it's not to say, let's draw a line and talk about one, not the other. But I think it's easier to get to a definition of a smart building for a new construction. One, because if you're already buying a lot of equipment, a lot of uh, as, if you're buying everything for the asset, you can incrementally get it a little bit smarter. I think to the point though, the, the, the value prop, Walter touched on some, some interesting points. I think if you are on this webinar and you have more existing buildings or you're looking at your existing portfolio, building portfolio, I should say, and you're trying to figure out where do I start? How do I build a business case? I would actually advise start small, smart, start focused, really start with what's a problem I can define. Can I quantify the cost of the problem? even before I bring in a discussion of, well, what are vendors going to cost? What are vendors going to do? But can I define the cost of the problem? And that could be hard costs. We're wasting a lot of energy because we know buildings have schedules that are, you know, everything is on 24 seven. We don't have a lot of visibility. We've tried to train local property managers or facility managers to set things back in a more appropriate way. It's not working. So you could quantify what's the waste, right? Cause you know, you're a retail store, you're open for 15 hours a day. You know, there's nine hours there where you may not need things to be on and they are on. Then you can start looking at, well, what are the options out there in the market to solve that problem? Maybe do some pilot tests. Maybe first, of course, do do some take some time just to invest in talking to those vendors, understanding the solution. Um, but you can build a strong business case. And I think by by being focused on a, a pilot or on a limited, both limited scope and also limited uh, maybe solution or, or limited problem to solve, you can build on that value prop and then you can keep building, 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 building and get wider and wider. And you'll incrementally continue to show value. Um, and I think there's a lot of ways to do that. To the question directly, it's not like go for energy savings, don't go for leak, uh, uh, identifying leak, leaks because you may be a building or a series of buildings where you've had a lot of trouble historically with leak, leaks and they've caused a lot of problems. And you can actually quantify both the hard dollars. We had to fix everything. People were out of their space. Also, just from a brand and, and, and reputational point of view, it was really damaging. If you can quantify that, great. You can go and find solutions that can, can address that. And then that's, that, that makes for a really strong business case. And once you've, you've done that, uh, there may be less skepticism internally if you have an organization where it's a little skeptical of smart solutions. 
Um, but you also can point to really strong success stories. Yeah. And Rory, I, sorry, just, I, just, I, oh, yeah, go ahead, Jeff. Yeah, yeah, just to add to that, I was just going to say the other the other part of that also is just by just by gathering sort of data and insights from from your various systems. One of the things that we we look at doing is uh, using that data to spend better and and plan our, our capital spending better. So by knowing which systems are failing, which pieces of equipment, which terminal devices are are sort of at end of life, we can sort of get away from that you know, that that model of, uh, you know, a piece of equipment will last 15 years. And it's just like sort of almost almost like an arbitrary number that we've kind of thought of nowadays where it's like 15 to 20 years is is, is life, life expectancy. But realistically, you might have a building where something's starting to fail in four years. So instead of spending money on the things that are actually working just because it's been 10 years, you know, we're focusing on uh, capital spending in areas where we are seeing more failures. Mm -hmm. Condition-based, not, not schedule-based. Sorry, just to... Exactly. Yeah. yeah, and to add to that, Archie, I think that is a really good point. But another additional thing to look at it is extending the lifetime value of that piece of equipment. To your point, let's say the average is 15 years. And by doing FDD, routine, make pr predictive maintenance, all of that stuff, you're extending the life another five years of that particular piece. Look what that does to the economic, the business side, the whole capital planning part. I mean, to me, you, you just hit it right squarely on the head there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, I think we saw some, uh, I was surprised at the optimistic uh, um, uh, results from our poll, you know, so it seems like people are still, still, still want to, Increase their their budget and their spend. Uh, Brad, you know when, the, when we were chatting earlier, we mentioned that when the market was down and you know credit is tight, companies often continue to spend on infrastructure. You know, what 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 components of smart building systems would you uh, consider to be critical critical infrastructure? Yeah, you know I think we traditionally think about infrastructure being the wiring and you know the plumbing, mm -hmm. and that is absolutely true in this case, right? If you don't have that network backbone for any of these new technologies to ride on, you're going to be limited. And you know, if you're not building that in from you know, the outset, you, you might be limiting your ability to ever be able to expand on that. Mm -hmm. I think that's important. But I also think that you know, as we recognize the critical nature of all these digital systems that are riding on that backbone, they really become mm -hmm. a part of the infrastructure of that building. And so I don't know that it always been thought of in that sense, but being able to find those things that have um, energy paybacks and labor paybacks and that support the company's ESG mm -hmm. mission, I think that these are things that we kind of shift our mindset around what this infrastructure and where, you know, where are people are going to continue to invest, even if credit is tight and there isn't liquidity and times get tough, that being able to put some of those tools in to be able to achieve all these, these goals we're talking about for uh, you know, retaining and for being able to operate more efficiently and saving energy, I think it's all going to be pretty critical. So I really look at a lot of these things, even if digital data riding on that, that uh, data plumbing within the building, that, that those are all infrastructure pieces to me, and I expect that if we're looking at the results of the polls and people are expecting that they're going to spend more in 2023, those are the types of things that people are going to be investing in. I see it a lot where uh, a lot of building automation systems are reaching into life and people are looking at what do they need to do now in replacing that system as they're considering their retrofit projects. They're asking us, well, what other things do we need to be considering? Because they're hearing all these messages out there. It's a lot of noise. It's a lot of things coming at them. It's hard for them to really understand where should they be investing. So kind of like Joe's point earlier, I say start where you are. 
I like this kind of shift from smart buildings to smarter buildings and thinking about it as a journey and not a destination. So that's something that you're going to continue to be able to implement. And we say, you know, that retrofit time, perfect time. Let's start by looking at a roadmap. Where is it you want to go and make sure that we're able to give you all that future runway that you're looking for and not just boxing you in with some of these solutions, the turn to point solutions or things you have to forklift in the future to be able to get those other uh, intelligent buildings, smart building features you're looking for. I actually have one quick point, maybe we'd be interested in others on the panel. I think we talked about this a little bit during our, our prep call. So the, the poll was pretty clear, more spending or significantly more spending on smart buildings. So one of the themes that I've seen in the market is, and I think a lot of have, a lot of others probably on this, this call have as well, is the flights of quality. And, and what that means is if you are an owner of a lot of real estate and you're occupying your space or you're just an occupier of, of uh, tenant occupied space, so you're leasing space, you may be downsizing your space. And there's a lot of metrics you could point to to say it looks like that's happening. But typically, if you're downsizing, you're keeping your best space, right? So it might be more modern, so it's more open in general, so it's easier for collaboration, easier for a, a kind of a hybrid work style where you may not have your own desk, but you know you'll, you will have a desk when you come in. So the flight to quality, you could argue, fits in very well with spending more money on those spaces to make them even better. And maybe, you know, there's also data that the rent of class A office buildings over the past three or four years has gone up. So through the pandemic, there's been an increase in rents for class A. There hasn't really been much movement for class B and C, which are more average or below average buildings. So because of that, there is the money, or it looks like at a macro level, there's the money for those who are already probably deploying smart building technology, the class A office buildings, are going to continue to have that money to spend or even spend more. So I think that is happening. I'd love some feedback. But I would also say, you know, that might be not great for the future when we look at adoption of any type of technology, typically starts with early adopters or those that, that kind of have the, the, the capital structure that they can fund it. But if you look five, six, seven years from now, maybe the class Bs and Cs have been converted to apartments. That's definitely happening um, or being talked about. And then the overall total addressable market for smart, build smart buildings becomes smaller. Um, I think the first point is probably more relevant for now, right? Is the flight to quality driving more money to spend on smart buildings? But it also could be a, a less positive, maybe it moves from a tailwind now to a headwind in the future. Yeah, definitely. Um, did anyone else have anything to add to that? Otherwise, uh, we've got a question here from, from the audience. Thanks very much. Keep them coming. Um, is there a checklist or template form to be filled by an architect preparing uh, a new construction building? Um, you know, so we could make a smart building proposal. It would be good to have such a document. Um, Brad, it seems to be in your wheelhouse. Uh, if you want to take a, take a swing at that. Yeah, some of those uh, frameworks and scoring criteria we talked about earlier would be a good set of that. Um, Ian, could you pull up this slide that you have on the AIA framework? This is something that we're doing for all of our projects in 2023 and going forward, is starting by talking about sustainability and resilience. You know, because this is something that we feel like is important. You know, as architects, we tend to be a little bit more of a progressive set, but also it's responding to our clients and uh, you know what they're asking for. And it's not just us, this is the broader community. So what we're looking at on the screen right now is the AI, AIA framework for design excellence. And if you look at all the different categories on here, think about how many of these things intelligent building solutions could be contributing to and how many of them might be very challenging to even be able to fulfill and document without having some sort of technology behind them. So, you know, where intelligent buildings might have been a, a solution in search for a problem 
previously, we're really turning that on its head now and becoming very critical to being able to make some of these things work. So this is one of the checklists that we're using. There's a lot of different solutions that get plugged into here. It's not technology solves everything, but it becomes a big component to it. And I think what's important too is that it's shifting those conversations earlier in our design cycles when we're talking about new construction. And it's not, we'll figure out you know, where the technology is after we get the walls up and we know where we'll put the TVs and computers. It's not transactional like it used to be anymore. It's so much more uh, you know, impacting the way that people and processes are working in, in uh, any of the buildings we're in. Yeah, Brad, I think this is, yeah, no, I was gonna say, I think just seeing this slide in particular and some of the comments you made are spot on. The earlier, the better. Having a framework to begin these discussions and have these discussions openly with everybody and understanding what the scope of these discussions may, you know, they vary depending on the size of the project, right? So like in particular, for example, design for integration, you may have visions of a particular use case, uh, but if it's not done with all eyes and ears at the table of all those participants that are selecting the equipment, how those things are gonna be cabled, not cabled, how they're gonna operate, how do they need to talk to each other? If you don't have all those things, it might be too late by the time you get to the point where it needs to be installed and those use cases don't come to fruition due to, due to simply just not coming at the table early enough and having that discussion with the right people. Uh, so I, I, I applaud you guys for having this kind of framework because uh, we do a, a somewhat of a similar thing here as well, just to ensure that there is this checks and balances to make sure that, you know, you're, you, you may always miss one or two things that's possible, but you know, those things may be easily correctable. The, the, the idea of getting change orders down the road and things of that nature is just such a headache. Uh, and the cost, mm -hmm. I mean, the financial impact is, 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 can be insane sometimes. Oh, for sure. Sense, right? For sure. I'm yeah, excited so about this specifically, just the, sorry, Myers, I said the, the design for discovery for me is the exciting part for this. We're architects, engineers, design firm as well. And, you know, I've always been very critical of the, the rating systems that put too much weight into predictions and simulations and, you know, getting the plaque on the wall. And then you might still have a lead plaque on the wall, lead goal from 2007, right? And it's like, it's no bearing on how the building is operating today. So I would applaud, um, these are the, the, the criteria for um, AIA code awards, for example. And so you can't submit uh, for an award without having post-occupancy data. And that's a really important point mm -hmm. because that's now when you're designing for integration, you need to have design for discovery in mind. And so, now we're starting to integrate false detection and diagnostics from the very first uh, draft of the, of the OPR of the you know the early design documentation. So um, that's uh, that's very exciting for me. There's also a collaborative uh, collaboratory a collaboration going on within the industry that has recently started to enhance the uh, specifications uh, in and around buildings to be smart or smarter. And some, especially in those areas that 10 years ago really weren't around, such as analytics, such as interoperability, uh, obviously cybersecurity and things like that. So, um, and this initiative, this coalition is uh, making some good progress. Still a long way to go, but uh, I think, uh, you know, that would help in addition to what you guys have just been talking about, the AIA framework. Etc. to give people the information they need to go ahead and include things that are going to make that building smarter right from the get-go. Mm -hmm. Yep, so we've got another audience question. I'll, I'll throw it out to whoever wants to take a swing at it. Um, good question. Um, will there eventually be legislation for smart buildings and how would that be enforced or policed? Um, I think 
smart buildings. I see things like Local on 97 in, in New York and Birdo right. in Boston. I, I think they're super positive, uh, having a super positive momentum on, on the industry. And it's just going to, I think in five years, every jurisdiction that has started a mandatory benchmarking and disclosure ordinance is the natural next step for that is to put some teeth in it and actually yeah. um, uh, track uh, carbon reduction. Joe, do you have, uh, want to jump yeah. in there? I well, I was going to add uh, or build on your point, Rory. Yeah, so Local on 97 in New York is is basically climate legislation. So there will be fines for exceeding uh, for your building uh, emissions, which are based on energy consumption in, in general, not 100%. But, but generally, there's a pretty good line there or line or relationship there. I think many of the standards we're seeing, if you look at, at that, you look at other you know, benchmarking regulations, they're a little bit more performance-based or disclosure based right so like uh energy star scores you have to disclose your energy star score and then there's also in the case of local law 97 you have to hit some performance target um there's less that i've seen thus far that says you need to do this list of things or this ingredient you know like, like here's the list of ingredients you need to do all of those things it's a little bit more fo focused on this is the outcome we want which i think in some ways is 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 good one it's probably easier to manage that as a jurisdiction but it's a little bit more aligned with what's our goal, right? We want to reduce carbon emissions. We want to uh, improve transparency of building performance so people can make better decisions about where they live, where they work, where they what, what they occupy. So that may be where things continue, where we have more performance-based, but I don't think that's exactly the same as regulating smart buildings because some buildings may be very efficient for a variety of reasons. Maybe they have a very robust management team, facility management team in that space, and they can actually improve, 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 but they don't necessarily need the best smart building technology. And while that's probably less common than we've invested in better technology, better systems, better sensors, analytics, um, we could see a kind of a, a regime moving forward where we continue to stay performance-based. There's just more performance targets you have to hit. That may inevitably lead people, as I noted, to adopting more smart building technology without prescribing you need a you need a building automation system that can connect to the cloud that can perform fault detection in the cloud that can automatically communicate to maybe back to the bms i mean that would be two-way control would be one thing that you could mandate that would be very smart or smarter than what's currently out there in a lot of cases um so so that's kind of a, a contrarian view to some degree or a counterpoint to your point rory even though i agree with you things are going in that direction yeah, Archie, I was going to ask you, maybe, I maybe even circling back to the previous question about the checklist. Um, is that something you do, a two-part question, is that something that you'd use? And then also, how, how do you feel about these mandatory, or, or you know, we have mandatory uh, things like Local on 97. Um, obviously, Quadreal are a very sophisticated outfit, and you guys are way out ahead of it. But um, what's, what's your thoughts there? Mm -hmm. well, I'll start with the second one first. Uh, so in terms of like like legislation to to kind of regulate smart buildings, I think, like I, like I don't see it happening to be honest. Like I, it, it's performance-based, sure, green standards, sure, uh, you know, uh, uh, standards for um, energy, yes, decarbonization, yes, but not smart buildings because it's such a hard. And I think it's kind of uh, like a point that we brought up, which is it's such a hard term to to really define because. Some of the smart building initiatives we're doing is trying to integrate to things like work order systems. So how do we how do we use smart buildings to automate work orders? Um, and I don't I don't think that's something that we'd ever want to have a have any kind of mandate around. Um, so I think in terms of smart buildings and the direction it's it's going in, um, 
there there may be some there may be there may be some standards that 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 get created, but I don't think anything will be enforced or or be mandatory. That that's kind of my my personal opinion. Um, and in terms of checklists, so one thing we did um, as an organization is we spent a lot of time creating a playbook. So that's something that uh, we we invested heavily in, and and it's something that we believe that is helping us create our own uh, standard as an organization. So when we reach out to, to architects and consultants and, and designers, we, we, we go in with a playbook of a list of use cases, uh, depending on what type of asset class it is, whether it's commercial, residential, retail, the use cases will, will obviously vary. But that's kind of our building blocks and our sort of basis of design of, of what's going to uh, be involved in a smart building. So that, that so I think, like one one um, one advice I would give to give to um, any any owners is that spend a bit of time creating a playbook, and that's that will be sort of your your foundation. And then as you engage, you know, consultants, architects, they'll have their own opinions, and you can build on it. But you need that like try to create your own standards. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. Walter, um, going to you know obviously talking about a lot of tying together of a lot of sophisticated technologies, you know, what, what's the importance of, uh, you know, coming from the MSI perspective, what's what's the importance of, uh, of an, an MSI in driving these business outcomes? Man, I, 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 I think it's probably the most important piece of this. Uh, it could be argued that it's the most important piece of this because, you know, technology, I, I think, is is in, in different, different areas has, has definitely, you know, it's providing a lot of the answers that people need, but it's the idea of, of of having the right MSI, having the right uh, uh, mindset, having having the right skill sets to understand exactly how to drive these outcomes from these pieces of technology. Mm -hmm. How do these technologies talk? Right, so many different protocols, so many different languages, uh, so many things that mm -hmm. are restricted based on. You may have a great idea, but how do these pieces come together? Right, that puzzle piece that comes together. Right, because I think an MSI mm -hmm. can drive a lot of efficiency. They can drive a lot of the conversation, a lot of the project management, which can save a lot of the financials within the project itself. Um, I think it actually probably can set you up for any future like readiness at the end of the day to that MSI, right? When they when they really understand exactly, mm -hmm. you know, I want X, I can actually suggest to you coming down the pipe as Y and Z. Let's make sure what we're putting together is not already going to be behind the behind the curve on future, right? Or Simply that MSI can start becoming a little a little bit more of a, a consultative approach, right? You know, we talked a little bit about guidelines and some of those like laws that, you know, will there ever be these sort of things? I kind of I lean a little bit on the other side of when clients globally, especially, especially outside of the States, but mm -hmm. globally they're asking for, I need my data, right? I need my data because I'm required to report on particular things. Without this data, I can't meet those requirements. And those might be you know, uh, it could be something that they need to report publicly, things of that nature. But in order to receive accurate, clean data, understanding that these systems need to talk to each other, the MSI plays like a, such a huge part in that almost like a master mm -hmm. data aggregator more than a system aggregator mm -hmm. at the end of the day, because uh, that's where a lot of it goes, you know, getting that data into the client's hands. So I think it's a huge, like, probably one of the more important pieces. Um, and, I, and, and I think to echo what you're saying, Walter, I agree. And, you know, part of that role also is, you know, for that MSI to be an advisor on the technology that is required, that is not only going to solve the issue or the challenge, the goals today, but to your point, how about in three years from now? How about I've got a portfolio and I want to make this scalable 
to utilize the same type of technology, programs, measurements, outcomes across my national mm -hmm. or global um, portfolio. And then also, I think part of that guidance is the fact that, you know, I don't think anybody today, when they purchase technology, wants to feel locked in that, oh, I, I decided to go with XYZ technology. And ultimately, that's the only technology that I can use, you know, because again, we're all about, you know, collaboration, open, you know, uh, et cetera. So, and I think that's another role where that MS, uh, MSI can play that role as an advisor who's impartial, but, uh, you know, their only impartiality is the ultimate outcomes and the goals for the, the client. Yeah, I, I think, and, and to add to that too, you're spot on, Mark. And I think, I think it's not a one and done, right? I think the MSI ends up building a relationship, right? Because throughout that process, it's ever evolving. Uh, you know, decisions being made, management changing, yeah. goals changing. Yeah. So I think you need that 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 partner at the end of the day. It's it's, it's really a partnership when 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 working with uh, you know those clients. And and just sorry to add, real one other quick point is, and then today we've got the um, people leaving jobs or they're retiring, you know, yeah. uh, and all of a sudden mm -hmm. there's no one left at that building to take on that technology, that part, but you still have that MSI. Uh, you, you hope you have that MSI. So anyway. Got, it. Mm -hmm. um, got a question from the audience. Uh, keep them coming. Some great questions there. Thank you very much. Um, just throw it out to whoever whoever wants to take a swing at this. Uh, are investors and tenants giving priority to owner operators who are setting specific net zero carbon reduction goals? Plus, once those goals are set, how would owner operators report their progress, or what would be the penalty if they didn't meet those goals? Maybe circles back in a little bit of what we were talking about with local on ninety seven earlier. Joe, do you want to take I, it? Well, yeah, I'll, I'll I'll share a couple quick nuggets. I think there's others who probably have other maybe direct experience. So. There is some data out there, it's not that new, it's pre-pandemic, that buildings that have LEED certification or an ENERGY STAR score, ENERGY STAR certification, right? So if you're over 75 in that one to 100 uh, uh, scoring system, percentile system, you can get the score, you can get certified. There's a process to get certified. For those buildings, they actually saw uh, higher, higher uh, lease rates, higher occupancy rates. They also saw higher value of the building when they were trading and there was some data analyzed across many, many buildings. So there is some indication, and there has been for a while, that if your building is better performing from an environmental impact point of view, you will have higher rents, higher occupancy, higher sale, which all these are linked, right? If your building has higher rents, you will, it is worth more money. But that does indicate that there's more demand from tenants. Um, I haven't seen updates to that, 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 that analysis or th those types of analyses, but I would expect that they there should be some more because we just see more and more that sustainability and, and ESG is, is impacting real estate. The other side of it, which I have heard from tenants, is that they do in some cases look for buildings where they can get, if you're a large company, but you have a small office, which is very common um, in you know maybe a, a mid-market, you may be asking your owner, uh, your, your landlord, can I get a monthly report on my energy consumption? Um, uh, can I even get that converted into carbon emissions? And that's what they use to then report to their corporate entity to say, you know, this is the footprint of our entire portfolio. Um, so that is definitely happening, although my examples are anecdotal, admittedly. 
And I'll add this, what I'm seeing, again, from a marketability perspective of a business or a corporation, that the ESG, the, the net zero, the carbonization, all of that is now part of their reputational uh, brand in the marketplace. So companies want to be associated with good corporate social responsibility. I've got office, I'm leasing mm -hmm. office space, and it mm -hmm. is a net zero building or you know, fill in the blank, whatever you want. Additionally, right. it they want consumers, whether your business or whatever, we want to buy from companies who are making an investment, mm -hmm. who have recognized the importance of the environment and they want to, you know utilize company uh, buy from companies who are doing that and then finally retaining uh attracting new talent especially mm -hmm. the younger generation that right. oh i want to go work for a company who's environmentally friendly boom so yeah right okay i want to work for a company that has more advanced systems because i'm 25 and when i look at a building automation system from 20 years ago that's a foreign interface yeah. to me. I mean, that's, that's another one, that's yeah. another discussion, yeah. but yeah, yep. agreed, agreed. Um, more great questions coming in from the audience. Um, thank you, Yannick, for this one. Uh, I'll start with Walter, but we'd love to get Archie's take on this as well. So um, should the MSI partnership be positioned on the investor or the operator side? So the asset or portfolio level or at the property level, which uh, where, where does it make more sense to, to engage? So I, yeah, I, I could start. Definitely um, what we have found, it's, it's, you need that buy-in, you need that champion, you need that authority level to help and be that partner. So we typically see it at the highest level is probably the best engagement. Mm -hmm. uh, those, mm -hmm. Typically at that level, you start to build more of a relationship and a less, less friction uh, throughout that process. Not that there always will be, but we see more advantages uh, at that owner uh, level than we do at the property level. I don't know if Archie. Mm -hmm about it no i think i think you're i think you're right walter i think from a i think at a the way i look at it is maybe from, from a deployment perspective and, and the and the kickoff it has to be at the at the at the asset the, the the top level um but from a change management perspective you you need to buy in from the property because at the end of the day every every change every every additional point needs to be need there needs to be that buy-in so they, they they can bring it to the msi because at the end of the day if you have you know properties all across the like the globe if you want to make sure that your uh you know if you have a single pane of glass so that, that that's all maintained you need that buy-in so that the property is reaching out to the msi and saying hey like we've added this point let's let let's keep let's keep things up to date yeah i i, I um one million percent uh, it's it definitely starts at the top to your point and then it's that adoption right if, if people aren't using the application then it, it renders itself useless so you're you're spot on archie i think driving that adoption internally is, is so key uh to, to the operators right to that property level for sure and maybe just uh, to build up build on that oh sorry brad go ahead i was just gonna say I think it brings us back to the conversation we we're having earlier about the cross-functional goal alignment and avoiding point solutions because there's some things you know you're building automation system you might be able to get by with having different systems in your different buildings but when you're talking about fault detection diagnostics that's really a portfolio play it, yep. you know, how are you going to compare the performance of your different buildings when you're getting different results from different platforms so 
Uh, being able yeah. to help normalize that data across your entire portfolio is something that's important and something that's tending to be delivered by the MSI. So I think that's another level you got to be looking at trying to avoid those point solutions where they might need to be informing each other building by building. Well said. Mm -hmm. yeah. Good points. Just to build on that question um, um, from Michael. Hey, Michael. Um, how, do you, how do you feel? I'll start with Walter and whoever wants can jump in there. But how do you feel about the dual role of the MSI vendor? The dual role is the MSI and the vendor. I think that's what the question is getting at you. Yeah, it's a little, if you're buying the systems from the same company that you're buying the uh, MSI from, I, if I can read into it. Oh, yeah. Probably, oh, so yeah. Having like almost like an impartial, uh, uh, basically divide in line between the two, essentially, right? Yes, yeah. Yeah, mm -hmm. gotcha. You know, uh, I, I, I would, um, there definitely is, is, is value for sure in having that impartiality. Uh, between the MSI and the actual vendor itself. Uh, what we have found in the past is, is you know, from our experience, um, finding the right MSI is not always the easiest thing. Uh, as us, as an MSI, uh, and us working with partners globally, helping them work through being a MSI that we qualify, kind of certify, uh, that is what our attempt is to help others kind of adopt our, our approach to being an MSI. Uh, I think there is value, obviously, from being an impartial MSI versus being, you know, providing the, the actual, uh, you know, the software application uh, itself. But I think that even that collaboration has to be really tight, too, to understand exactly what the outcomes right. are. So I think there's there's definitely some value there. But I think there's, uh, you know, again, the, the role of the MSI, even just the term the MSI. I mean, it's, it's, yeah. it gets overused so often. And it's, it's what is a quality MSI, right? And and I think that's where some people get lost in in who they're actually selecting, um, because there's so many various roles and levels that of expertise that an MSI should have. Uh, that just because they're impartial doesn't mean that they're still qualified uh, to be yeah. the MSI for that project. Let's say, right? So that's um, <laughs> a good answer. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, oh, did you have any other, Joe? No, I think I I I was just. Everything Walter says is, is true. I've heard stories of, you know, so one, the MSI industry is a pretty small industry and maybe others have, have numbers behind this, but I think a lot of MSIs are not large companies. Uh, there are large companies that have small teams that are MSIs internally, um, but I've definitely heard from those buying MSI services that, you know, we have an MSI, they're located in, let's say the East Coast. We brought them out to our office in the West Coast because they did such a good job. We wanted that MSI. The, the impartiality point, that actually comes up in a lot of cases. I hear that a lot with ESCOs where we wanted an ESCO that doesn't make the equipment because we, we want them to pick the best equipment, not their equipment. And I think some of that is, you know, MSI, you know, five years ago, we were not talking much about MSIs. Now you talk about MSIs quite a bit. I think there's something of a maturation that everything in our industry goes through where three or four years from now, I think we'll have very clear cut, that's an MSI, that's an SI, a systems integrator. Uh, these are the companies that are very strong MSIs. Some of them have probably grown organically. Some of them have probably grown inorganically. Um, so just a little bit of color maybe to the points you made, Walter, mm -hmm. just to add to it. Yeah. Yeah. No, good, good, yeah, good answers for sure. Bad. I was going to say there's a lot of uh, MSIs kind of walking around in MSI clothing. So you got to really be careful <laughs> with that. <laughs> They've done just one. And, and, Archie, I, I think you, you probably have a lot of knowledge here. How do you think about it? I don't want to put you on the spot, but how do you think about the difference between an SI and an MSI? Because adding the M to your website is, you know, joking, joking, uh, you know, I think you get, yeah. 
Yeah, no, no, I, I get it. Yeah, and I think it's it. You know, I think it's 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 one of those things like defining a smart building again, right? Like, yeah. And, and SI, I feel like they can they can integrate at the building level, and they can okay. integrate at a certain. There, I think there's a certain layer they can integrate to. But once you get to things like and and you know like there's a lot of building automation companies out there that that kind of are more systems integrators as opposed to master systems integrators. And once we start talking about like things like, hey, we want to start integrating to Yardi, or we want to start integrating to other systems that are not traditionally yeah. in the world yeah. of uh, like that, the, the, the operations, then um, that's where you differentiate your MSI and your SIs. Yeah, I really like the distinction of kind of scale of the organization. You could argue because you were talking about up to a certain system, but you could argue as you get to a portfolio or a, a grouping of buildings, maybe not the full portfolio, the other one, I, so I think that's actually an excellent way to think about SI versus MSI. The other one I've heard is just the raw number of systems that can be integrated together, right? So like an SI traditionally would focus on controls, maybe HVAC equipment and controls, and that's systems integration. Whereas an MSI would do that plus access control, plus maybe lighting, so on and so forth. Now, of course, that also is probably not a black or white line you can draw because there might be an SI that has in a one or two cases integrated the lighting control system into the you know building automation system. but. Yeah, I, I mean, as long as it's open, they should be able to integrate to it, right? Like, it's it's no yeah. longer just communicating on, on BACnet. We're now talking about APIs. We're talking about MPT. We're talking about, you know, yeah. anything that can be integrated and master systems integrators should be able to, be able. to pull data from. Makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, great. No, it's, it's a good discussion. Yeah. Well, I, I think there's pros and cons to both independent versus the, the vendor-aligned MSI. Mm -hmm. and, the vendor aligned MSI is able to bring a lot of their own solutions to the table and say, if you are also buying our equipment, uh, you know, buy our switch gear, buy our medical equipment, we're going to be able to integrate that stuff more efficiently and we're going to save you money just through volume purchase. So there's some of those things that they can do there, but I think there's other ways that the independent MSI, just the way that they're tooled typically tend to be a little bit more adept at things Archie's saying with connecting to some of your other business systems, other non-traditional building data sets. Whereas I feel like, uh, because of maybe the maturity of where the MSI industry is as a whole and the background that a lot of those um, more of the, the vendor aligned MSIs have is coming from that controls background. So they're very versed in the building side of things. Tying the lighting controls in there is old hat. Um, you know, I, I see a lot of the SIs who are able to do that, be able to pull some monitoring points off of the electrical gear and off the fire alarm. And it's once we really get into more of that sophisticated it's something you need a software development team to be able to do. Um, it's something I feel like the way that a lot of the, the MSIs who are independent have structured themselves, they, they just tend to have more of that kind of team on staff and it gets to be a little bit more cumbersome. Um, you get the ability to deal with, uh, you know, sometimes these large companies that are working as MSIs, they, they have this breadth of knowledge across the whole organization, but it's not as centralized. So it's a little harder to get access to it, it's a little harder to get those people's time slotted into your project. Um, so there's, there's no right or wrong answer. I think it's making sure you go in with your eyes open as the owner and understanding what the best fit is for you and your organization. Mm -hmm. Oh, for sure. So maybe um, to bring it back where we kind of started and, and building on some of the, the poll results that we saw there, um, I'll start with Archie, but would love to hear everyone's kind of take on this. Um, what are the, you know, in your opinion, what are the drivers for smart building investments looking ahead and in the lens of, you know, we, we, we all, we're all familiar. I think the audience is all familiar with what the drivers were for the last couple of years, but specifically through the lens of looking ahead for, for, for the upcoming year, what, Archie, what do you think are, are, in your opinion, are some drivers for investments? I mean, I think the, 
the top drivers for us, I mean, there, there's a lot, but there's a lot out there. But some of the ones that are um, that are that are kind of uh, pushing some of the pushing the uh, 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 the need for smart buildings is uh, energy efficiency, um, being able to prove out um, ROIs, so having sort of that insight, having insight into what your building's doing, um, and cost savings, and you know, and and uh, that that if if for us, anyways, if, if you can prove that there is an ROI and there is cost savings, that's an easy sell, I think, to any owner to say this makes sense. Um, and then, uh, like, like the other part of it is, uh, and then I think we touched on a little bit, is um, having some of those insights for better spending. Uh, it's it's not necessarily more spending; it's just being able to spend better. And that that comes from having having some of those insights and and data into um, higher system is performing um, so that that's been a that's been a that's been a pretty big driver I mean on, on top of that you know things like uh, what our tenants are looking for so some of some of the things our tenants are looking for are uh, uh, like air quality what is the air quality in the building and tenants want to have reports and want to know about um, uh, how those spaces are doing so that so that's become a driver into um, uh, pushing you know more smart buildings and and, and having more um, within the building um so yeah uh, i'd say like the, 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 the. yeah uh, interesting point you made there being able to spend better i think that's a, a yeah you i know i know you mentioned your fdd deployment and i'm sure you're harvesting a lot of energy air quality data and bring it into a centralized place is that is that the type of data that you're using to inform capital spend your capital planning efforts yeah so um so there's yeah there, i guess there, there's two parts to that one is using the data that we have in order to spend better so knowing where all the failures are where the where the pain points are um and then so so that that's one way that we we can spend better the other way is also um by sort of creating standards across like the portfolio and uh knowing where all the failures are so if we're noticing there's um you know six buildings that have similar failures uh trying to create bulk agreements nationally so working with vendors and saying hey, we have you know 20 pumps that have failed we want to create a some kind of agreement with you and, and getting bulk deals i think that's another um another sort of um, avenue for better spending that we're looking at mm -hmm. yep. mm -hmm. mm -hmm. okay. points um joe what's your take on uh drivers for 2023 what are you seeing yeah, I think, you know, I, I mentioned it, the flight to quality, I think is a big mm. one, um, just because I, I think there are now more smart building solutions, and they do have more use cases, there's a clear value proposition, uh, you can build a business case, even if it's not a home run business case, like out of the box, you may still have to do some work to figure out what are our, our, our needs, everything I talked about earlier, it's, it's easier to do it than it was two, three, five years ago. Um, I would also say this isn't exactly a driver, but I also just know from the work I do, um, I, I you know, other just conversations I've had, uh, looking at just the, the market for raising capital if you are a smaller company, I think there will be a lot of uh, consolidation. And, and I say that, I feel like it's become kind of a, a, a theme that everyone has been talking about. What that is as a driver though, or how, how does that relate to being a driver? If you are out there looking for solutions, you may find that there are more comprehensive offerings that cover more use cases that are clearer as at least viable solutions. I mean, everyone has to go through a process to find what's the best solution for themselves, but it may be a little bit more clear cut now 
be, because you have some of this consolidation. And we're starting to see it. I, on my website, I just have a list of all the M&A activity. It's just a Google Doc. Anyone can access it or Google spreadsheet, technically. Um, I think that that could create a driver in that it becomes a little bit easier to find a solution that works for you. And related to that, there's just fewer solutions out there because of this consolidation, which means it's less effort. To, instead of looking at 50 potential solutions, maybe there's 20 to 25 you start with, you go through a funnel process. Um, and, and I think that by no means am I saying the market at the end of 2023 will be consolidated or the early 2024, the market will be consolidated, but even incremental consolidation, I think helps um, and, and may be a driver uh, for the buyers and, and users of these solutions. Mm-hmm. Anyone else want to jump in there? Brad, I was going to ask you about the, the, more the backbone infrastructure. I mean, how, you mentioned earlier, I mean, how that is so fundamental. I mean, where do you see capital spend in that area looking ahead in 2023? Um, well, I was going to give you an answer in a different direction, actually, Rory. I want oh, to yeah, focus on the, the S and the ESG, right? The social side of this oh, and yeah. what those numbers are. Uh, you know, I think that we're seeing more businesses that are um, voluntarily putting out their ESG uh, emission statements. And, you know, it's driven by a lot of factors, but a lot of that is going to be millennials and Gen Zs as an aggregate. Right? I'm kind of generalizing here, but being more socially conscious than some of the previous generations were. They're coming of age where they're in that coveted uh, marketing demographic, and these companies want to make sure that they're meeting the demands of their customers. So it's something that's now filtering into the boardrooms. And you know, we're seeing investments in it, not just on the building side of things, but you know, the, the big investment banks. And it's a little disappointing to see Vanguard kind of backing down from some of their ESG funds, but a lot of others are still holding strong. And so, you know, I think there's a lot of those factors that are driving the companies that, that uh, have buildings that are putting together these mission statements that are beyond just we exist to make money and drive value to our shareholders. And uh, Simon Sinek. I uh, put it very well in his book, The Infinite Game, where he said these companies that are going to succeed, that are having an infinite mindset, are the ones who have a really clear mission that is more than just make money. It's what is it that you're trying to do to contribute to society, contribute to making your employees' lives better, improving their safety and security. So you know, those drivers, I think, become the things that help us be able to solidify what are those business goals that we can then start to map out all of our use cases and intelligent building solutions and uh, you know, to translate all this stuff into how is this going to be impacting the things we're trying to talk about today as far as what those other business drivers are for adapting. You yeah. know, and Rory, yeah. on some of, some of these drivers, you know, uh, Archie, I think, you know, the lower cost, the low, I think that's important. And a couple of things, I, in my opinion, that we kind of touched on earlier in our conversation is risk mitigation, uh, improving the building resiliency, and, you know, then on, you know, this sort of the whole back to uh, back to the office and all that, you know, it, I look at it is does the building owner, as far as a driver, uh, will this be creating commute worthy buildings? In other words, making buildings better for to help bring back people to the office, okay, what, again, what I call commute-worthy buildings, and then building that trusted building environment, again, coming off COVID and all that, as a occupant, whether it's corporate or uh, lease tenant, I want to make sure that I'm walking into a building where the air quality is good, 
it's it's safe uh, and so forth and so on fill in the blank so I think those truly are the drivers all put around ESG I think that's a huge driver yeah mm -hmm. I, I I'll answer that a, a little bit Rory a, a different than what is the driver I think there's like from our perspective mm -hmm. coming from somebody who's trying to help those drivers the the platform that tries I think data data is is how can we start making these decisions these these better educated decisions, unless you have the data. So the idea of creating mm -hmm. that independent data layer, the idea of giving the access to the owners, giving that data to the owners to help them make these better decisions. I think, you know, 23 is like, you know, simplify. How do we get this data in their hands? How do we get the visualizations? Mark, to your point, how do we make sure when you walk into a building, you're seeing accurate data, you're, 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 you're mm -hmm. providing that information to tenants to come back into work, like that data has to be clear. It can't just be a gut feeling, right? So, um, so from my perspective, 23, it's, it's like IDL, clean, clear data, put that data in the hands of the owners, help assist to Archie's earlier point. When you do have that data, have teams that can provide you some impact analysis based on that data, not just say, hey, there's a thousand alarms. Well, what do you do with these a thousand alarms, right? How can you create some sort of better idea to help the clients, right? So it's a lot of like, that but it all starts with clean data in, in, in my mind and it's just that uh that independent data right for sure yeah i'm a, a big believer in, in the independent data letter too um great question mm -hmm. from patty mason hi patty um glad you're on um i'll direct it maybe to archie first uh thoughts on on tenants driving smart building solution adoption without corporate cooperation from their owners uh, global tenants have multiple owners across their portfolio, their lease spaces, and um, seem very interested in getting this data back to back to what Walter just mentioned. You know, especially from mm -hmm. smart meters, IAQ monitors, uh, you know, for their own ESG reporting. How, what do you what do you see in there, Archie? Yeah, I think tenants are 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 looking for more data, and you know, um, so that's that's something that we're able to provide with being able to give them at least um, some of the some of the base building data, but also at least giving them the backbone to stand up some of their own in uh, some of their own systems so you know putting in mm -hmm. things like uh, having having a solid lp one system that they can leverage so instead of you know a tenant going in having to run all new wires to every single uh, iot device having some some kind of backbone that they can leverage so that's something that we that we've seen some tenants uh, um, find as a bonus where we say we've already stood this up for you all you got to do is mount your sensors wherever you want them to be so if you're interested heavily in air quality you know use this IOT device make sure it communicates on this LP1 and 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 mount it wherever you want and we'll we'll maintain that data for you so that's so, so we are seeing some tenants um, requesting um, that kind of uh, backbone um, but as long as as long as the data surface somewhere and, and and to Walter's point, trying to gather just gathering as much of that data as possible, then we can uh, sort of uh, give them give them some insight into uh, how their spaces are. And you know, it's not necessarily always saying you know CO2 or 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 or, or 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 some other metric, but maybe gathering all the metrics and saying you know and and creating a standard to say you know the sum of these metrics is giving you this type of space. It's a it's a uh, it's a healthy space, or you know some you know creating creating some kind of some kind of metric between unhealthy and healthy, and saying by using uh, eight different metrics, we're saying this is a healthy space. And Mark, Archie, I was just gonna say real quick a question for you. One of the things we didn't talk about today was the rise of 
tenant engagement platforms or this, this idea that uh, an app for tenants to use, but it would strike me that that might be one of the drivers leading to some of these requests from tenants that you described that Patty asked about. I, I, have you seen some, you know, I want to show all this data to all of my tenants on the app that I've rolled out across my organization. Yeah, no, for sure. So, you know, we, we, we have our own, we have our own um, Quadro Plus app and that is something that tenants uh, are leveraging. I mean, the, the, the you know, the, the adoption of it, it was, is sort of sometimes a challenge, but uh, you know, giving giving tenants the same experience they might have in their, their homes, where they have some, they have a like a curb to couch experience. So as soon as they enter the building, they can use their their their, their phone to access all their different um, you know amenities areas, their own spaces. Um, and once we once we kind of have that stood up, then that's what we use to give them that data. So instead of reports or emails or, or something like that they can they have real-time access to their to, to their data through like a mobile app yeah i was going to mention just to build on that mark as one of the original godfathers of the of the haystack community uh knows better than anyone else the, the the challenge and the power of organizing that data we can gather the data but you know until we can organize it and structure it properly to to gain actionable insights um that's 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 the biggest challenge Hi, Chuck. Yeah, and, yeah, exactly. Thank you. No, go ahead, Mark. Finish up. No, I, I just basically I think and it's not about big data anymore. It's smart data. It's the right data and focus in on that. And to your point where it's got to be organized, gathered. Walter, you said the same thing. Uh, we all do. We all. Excellent, excellent, excellent. I think uh, it, it, what a what a great panel. Probably one of the best that I've seen. So so you guys all get A's today. How about that? You want to do? I do want to thank you to all of our panelists. Just great contributions. Lots of information to process. I, I'll probably be watching this uh, recording again. I might even be able to put an article together to send it to Realcom. Uh, thank you to the live audience for being so active with all the incoming questions. Uh, if you'd like to get more involved in the Realcom community, I'm speaking to the live audience as well uh, and the recorded audience if you're watching this. If you want to get involved as an advisor, a speaker, a panelist, uh, reach out to me or any of the other Realcom team members. You may have a case study that could really help just dozens of other companies and it's all about being part of that community. So whether you've joined this as a live or you're watching it as a recording, again, thank you to for tuning in. I do want you to consider registering for the second webinar in this series, uh, it's called Driving Business Outcomes with Smarter Buildings. That's the series. This one's focusing in on case studies. So you heard a lot about the how and the why here and, and some of the, the what, but next time it's really gonna be the case studies, how, that, that how they did it and, and uh, the outcomes of some of these pieces and why are they, they spending. So do want you to get registered for that. Um, Again, if you've watched, you're watching this as a recording and you think of some questions that you, you would have liked to ask, but you didn't, and you want to send them to, to that group, uh, send them to Ian and he'll forward them on to me. Also, February 9th, we're going to explore the investment management industry, the whole integrated enterprise systems, data consolidation, advanced analytics. What are these companies doing with their investment management enterprise automation? Um, and they'll be able to even talk through some case studies on that. So uh, just a tremendous amount of great content and you, and you do want to be part of that community. 
And it is never, never, never too soon to begin making plans for RealCom IBCOM 2023. You, uh, you'll be able to connect with this community in person, just like you've, you've heard here, develop relationships with people just like who are on our panel today, expand your network connections. So we'll be in Las Vegas at Caesars Palace mid-June. You can see there, be sure to get registered. That's it for us. What a great content, just a fantastic, uh, just ton of information. That's it for us. Be safe, and we'll catch you next time. Thank you. Take care, everybody. Thank you. Take care. Thanks, Thanks. Thanks.